How many of you guys have seen or heard the, uh, the kind of viral Vine video or, or heard the expression, expose him? Anyone? Oh, man, this intro is going to flop. Uh, <laughs> well, if you, other than Carrie, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard of this, it was, it's a, a, a phrase that a, that a video kind of popularized that it seemed like about December 2014. It's hard to tell, you know, uh, when something becomes viral and explodes, like finding its origins, because all a bunch of other YouTube channels and stuff will post a similar video. But it's a video from a, a guy in high, uh, a high school in the Dallas, Texas area who uh, is playing basketball and dribbling and doing some crossovers in front of his opponent. And there's a, there's a guy in the stand who's recording the student dribbling the ball, and he keeps yelling, expose him, expose him. And the kid dribbles, and he does a couple moves around the back, and the defender kind of trips and uh, does one of these moves and falls over, and the whole, everyone laughs. And it's a funny video. I'd, I'd recommend looking it up because I, I just, I did not do that justice. But it's a basketball term for when you dribble and trick someone into thinking you're going into a direction, you you cause them to, stum- to stumble. You're exposing kind of the, the weakness of the defender. And what I was hoping to do with this introduction was show you how this is what Malachi is doing to the Israelites. He is exposing them. He is exposing their insincere, half-hearted worship, their disobedience against God. In this section, he's exposing the religious leaders for being phonies, the priests who are leading people dis- to dis honor God. If you remember last week, we, we looked at the beginning of Malachi and kind of set an introduction to the book. As Malachi was writing and prophesied in this time to kind of wake up the people, to call the people back to repentance, uh, that they had wandered from God. They were offering lame leftover sacrifices. Uh, divorce was running rampant. There was great moral decay among the people. Uh, there was a decline in the, in the biblical leadership of the people with the priests. And Malachi is, is writing to expose, to wake the people up, to bring them back to God in repentance. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 5, and we looked at the question of the Israelites asking God, how have you loved us? And God affirmed his love for his people by showing his great mercy towards them and reminding them of the unconditional sovereign election of the nation of Israel, showing them his, of his mercy. And this week, we're looking at the question, that the Israelites ask God, how have we despised your name? How are we dishonoring you? I'm picturing in these kind of questions a a, a disobedient child, like a a stubborn teenager who is, or if you're a parent and you have a kid, you might know this, what this is like having a child, or maybe you even remember when you were like this as a kid, how you were so disobedient that you didn't really realize how you were dishonoring or disrespecting or, or disobeying your parents. Or maybe you did, <laughs> and you were just so hard-hearted and stubborn in your ways that you didn't really care. seems like that's what Malachi is trying to do, is wake the people up. Either they are blind to their disobedience, or they're so stubborn and hard-hearted that they didn't really care. And a couple of scholars pointed out uh, that in, in Malachi... Although Malachi opens and the, the people open with asking this question, God, how have you loved us? The question that they should be answering is, people, how have we loved God? 
That's what Malachi is doing. He's kind of turning the tables on their question. How have you loved God? So if, if you have your Bibles this morning, open with that passage our friend Peter read. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. This morning we're looking at verses 6 through 14. And opening in chapter 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? This is a unique concept that kind of sets Christianity apart, the reality that God is our father. He's not some sort of inaccessible, uninterested deity. He is a father. But he's not only father, Malachi shows us that he's also master. He's showing this illustration. Okay, if God is father and master, are you showing him honor? Are you fearing him? If earthly fathers and earthly masters expect honor, how much more does God deserve to be honored? The Bible talks about in Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So if God is infinitely and ultimately glorious, how much glory does he, should he receive? All glory, everything. If God is infinitely honor, honorous, honorable, honorous, no, Honorable. He deserves infinite honor. He deserves to be highly respected, highly revered. But this is a question that uh, might confuse some of us if he says, if I'm a master, where is my fear? Does God want to be feared? What is the fear that God is due? What does it mean to fear God? And for Malachi, this is a, this is a big theme in, in the book. This is a major theme in, in his prophecy. Um, and I wanted to just kind of unpack a little bit what the fear of God means. So I, I wanted to go through some scriptures and see what does the Bible talk about the fear of God. The Bible is clear to me, number one, that the people of God are to fear God. That's, that's true. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Um, if, you, if you'd like these references later on, I'd, I'd be happy to give them to you. I'm just kind of going to go through them pretty quickly. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Number one, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Interesting in that passage that we, we know and maybe are familiar with, the loving God and serving him, that the first thing is actually fearing him. Fearing God is what Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes as the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is a pretty important thing, fearing God. Listen to the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Maybe not to love you, to fear you. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord leads to rest and satisfaction in life. Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. The fear of the Lord leads to friendship with God. Psalm 25.14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Bible talks about the people of God are to, to delight to fear God. In Nehemiah 1.11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Now that right there, just kind of highlighting what the Bible talks about, the fear of the Lord, we might think, fear of God, isn't that something that, you know, fear is scary? Like, we shouldn't fear God. How would we want to delight to fear in God? Well, Martin Luther describes the fear of God like a child who has just tremendous respect and love for his father and mother, who dearly wants to please them. Because he has a fear of anxiety, of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who is, in that child's world, the source of identity and love. So for the people of God, the fear of God, to fear God means, in light of the scriptures, to have a deep respect, reverence, and awe for God, for his holiness and for his majesty. As we talked about, God is the most honorable, reverent thing, most fearful. He deserves to be honored and revered above all things. Now, if you've been in church for a little while, you hear someone talk about the fear of God, some might say it simply means just respect. To fear God means to respect him. And uh, a commentator named Taylor says it like this in his commentary on Malachi, certainly respect does not adequately express what God's holiness should arouse in us. Respect calls for politeness and such gestures as taking off one's hat, but fear results in awe and obedience. The fear, of the, God, the fear of God leads to obedience. Now, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, the kind of fear of God that we might think of with scary, being afraid of, cowering fear, we do not feel. But that is what people who are outside of God, people who are outside of Christ, that should... That fear of God should motivate them to seek reconciliation. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. For the unbeliever, the fear of God is the fear of judgment, the fear of eternal death, the fear of eternal separation from God, the terror, the terror that should happen outside of Christ. Well, we can't say this morning that well, just because we don't have that kind of fear that we shouldn't fear God. Like, oh, just because we have Jesus now, that old scary God in the Old Testament, all those verses about fearing God, it, those, those kind of don't apply to my life. We can't lose this sense of awe and wonder and uh, reverence for God. We can't say, well, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, God is just like our buddy. Uh, Nathan, Nathan has a, one of his favorite songs is Jesus, you're my best friend because of this. Just joking, he hates that song. <laughs> if we are in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of God's punishment. We don't have to fear the rejection of God, of suffering and eternal punishment, of losing the love of God, but we should never lose the fear of God in the sense of the awe and wonder and reverence. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The author of Hebrews writes, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptingly, acceptably with reverence and awe. For, quote, our God is a consuming fire. R.C. Sproul says it like this, 
The fear of God is often lacking in contemporary evangelical Christianity. We get very flippant and cavalier with God as if we, could, we have had a casual relationship with the Father. Father. We are invited to call him Abba, Father, and to have a personal intimacy promised with us. But still, we are not to be flippant with God. We are always to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for him. So when God asks, where is my fear? This is what he's getting at. But then he says another, he describes himself, Malachi describes him in kind of an interesting way, a title that that I don't necessarily use in my daily uh, prayer language or or talking about God. He says in verse six, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what is the hosts? You were raised in the Catholic church, you know the host is a little cracker that you dip in the wine. God is the God of crackers. Yes, he is. But what does that mean, the Lord of hosts? Actually, this title, uh, it appears over 260 times in Scripture, Lord of hosts. The title that speaks to God's sovereignty, this host meaning a horde, a vast multitude. It can refer to numerous things. Sometimes it's referred to heavenly being, angels, armies, all creatures, you guys ever heard that song, um, Whom Shall I Fear by Chris Tomlin? It talks about the God of angel armies. This is, this is kind of a way of describing that, the Lord of hosts. Now, the NIV describes or translates this term as the Lord Almighty, the way of talking about it. But so I like the ESV a little more, a uh, little more word for word. It talks about the, the Lord of hosts, getting at God is the God of angelic armies. He's the commander. He's the warrior. And interestingly enough, out of all the books in, the, in your Bible, the Lord of hosts appears most frequently in Malachi. Why? He would, that's what I was wondering. Why, why would this happen in, in Malachi? Well, in the time of Malachi, this is after the exile, looking at the, the context we looked at last week, uh, Judah, the Jews, they were a small people. And they had basically been, uh, their army had been wiped out. Uh, they had very little power. Uh, they basically had no army. And they were, in the, they were in the midst of the powerful Persian empire. So you think, okay, they have no army. They have nothing to rely on, kind of nothing that they could bank on to defend themselves. God is reassuring them through this phrase that the Lord of hosts, you don't need an army. I and the commander of armies. I am your warrior. You can rest in the reality that God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, the warrior, the defender, and the protector, that although the people had limited resources in themselves, God was reaffirming them, reassuring them of his power, his sovereignty. Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? And he directs us specifically, you see there in verse six, O priests, who despise my name. If the leadership had failed, what could the people be expected to do? If the leadership were leading people astray, they were is who Malachi is exposing. But they have the nerve to say, but you say, how have we despised your name? God, how have we despised you? Verse seven, 
by offering, God answers, by offering polluted food upon the altar. Say, but how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? This word despise, you see there, it occurs three times in verses six through seven. It's a verb that can mean show contempt. It's a verb that occurs in the participle sense, meaning that it's a continual attitude. Like, you guys are despising my name. You are dishonoring me. You are treating my name with contempt. Now, name in the biblical sense refers to God's being, his character, his reputation. And so what they're doing in their actions is they are rendering God's name. The representation of who he is, his character, his, his, his reputation as insignificant, as meaningless. They were not honoring or fearing God. In fact, they were doing the opposite. They were despising him. They're polluting his table, his altar. One commentator said it like this, the table is a symbol of hospitality and relationship. And the attitude towards someone's table would betray the attitude toward the person and relationship. Although the priest would not likely have used the term uh, contempt for the Lord's table, their actions spoke for them. They were doing what was contradictory to the word of God. Because God lets out pretty clear expectations and guidelines for how the people are to make sacrifices to him. And in Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites were to offer ceremonial, ceremonially clean animals. They weren't to have imperfections. And you see, the, the priest and the people of God are doing, in fact, the opposite. Animals that are blind, that are lame, that are sick. God says, is that not evil? Only pure, unblemished animals were to be acceptable and to be sacrificed. And not only were the Israelites and the, the priests specifically offering polluted sacrifices, but they were doing so with this flippant attitude, this contempt. You ever come across someone, maybe you've had this in your life, or a friend who they are deliberately disobeying the word of God, and you approach them about it, and then they don't seem to even care? That's a scary place to be. God tries to give them an illustration to show them the ridiculousness of what they're doing. He says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you? Will he show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. So God's kind of getting sarcastic here. We talked about this in, in, in the gospel according to Mark, that when, when Jesus kind of gets, or God kind of gets this tone, <laughs> not usually a good thing. It's like one of the things that he's kind of do to, like one of his final punches or blows to get, trying to get the people to wake up. Hey guys, would you do this to your governor? But then verse nine, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to you? In other words, the point that God is getting across here is that he's not going to extend his favor when the gifts that he's given them are treated with contempt. When they have this flippant attitude. As you offer polluted sacrifices, you despise my name and then you want my favor. Would you do this with your governor? I had to thinking about this, uh, maybe putting it in our kind of contemporary 
idea, our, our modern language, like, you know, if you knew the mayor of Des Moines was coming over, I mean, if you didn't care for him, like the Queen of England, or if you didn't care for her, someone that you looked up to, like, you know, if John Calvin or Martin Luther was coming over, or the Apostle Paul, I'd, I'd want to think that if the Apostle Paul was coming over to your house, you'd clean up a little bit, you'd maybe buy a nice piece of meat, I mean, you'd you kind of offer him your best, like, my guest of honor. I mean, I want to honor this. This guy's, I want to show the respect that is, is due to this guy. What would it look like if the Apostle Paul or the Queen of England or the Mayor of Des Moines comes over? He knocks on your door, you don't answer. So uh, he just kind of lets himself in and you're sitting back on the couch with your shirt off. You've got some holy sweats on. You've got a plate of half-eaten nachos on the table. So, yeah, I, I had those for lunch. Um, it might be a little warm. Go ahead and feel free to help yourself. I mean, I don't think I would do that, right? That would not be honoring. Okay, if I come over to your house and like that, okay, that might be a sign of respect, actually, a flattery. You feel that comfortable with me. Awesome. But would we do this to a governor? God is showing that you would never do that. You would never offer these lame sacrifices to a governor and... and Ask for his favor. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, how do we do this? How do we show contempt for God in our actions? How do we dishonor God? What do your actions, what do our actions reveal about our hearts? question I've been mulling over in my head a lot as I am a people pleaser and oftentimes the fear of man gets the best of me is do I fear the rejection of man or the rejection of God? Who ultimately do I care about? And what does my life reflect in that? Do I seek to be honored above God or do I seek God to be honored in my life? Now again, I don't think, just like the Israelites, they might not say that explicitly. Like when we, when we wake up in our morning prayers, God, I pray that you would honor me above all things. I don't know if many of us would do that. But through, look deep down and see the nastiness, see the wickedness in your own heart. And look at your actions. Do you sacrifice with your best? Do you offer your best? And do you do so with a heart of honor and reverence? I'd ask this week that we'd examine our hearts for our own hypocrisy. Because God has some strong words that he uses about hypocritical, half-hearted worship in verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. How would you like God to say this to us? I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And just imagine, you know, if, if you decide to, to give every week or every month by offering in the little box, you have contempt in your heart, you go up to the box, you put it in, and it just shoots it right back out. That was weird. You go to give online and it rejects your online giving. Do 
This is a sobering thought. God's saying, I have no pleasure in you. I wish that you would close the doors. And this is, a, this is a sobering thought for me because the Israelites were worshiping in the right place. They had the right names. They probably had the right sayings. I think what Malachi is showing is that you can worship God in the correct name at the right place, the one true God, but he will not accept your offering, your worship, if it is not pure. It does not come if your heart is polluted and defiled. And Malachi seems to be showing us that God prefers no worship, no offerings on his altar above defiled ones. How many churches have ceased to be a people of worship, not because they have the wrong doctrine, but because they have calloused hearts? That's scary. We can't just think, well, because we have the right doctrine, we can quote the scriptures really well, and our hearts are far from God. Our hearts are not engaged. We don't have a a reverence, a wonder for God that we're somehow good. We're not like all those other compromising churches in the Northwest. We still believe this. You know, those other churches, you know, we're, I can do this as a pastor. I think we can do this as a church. Yeah, we have the right doctrine. Mm. We, we hold to this. Church, our hearts have to be in it. My prayer this week was, God, would you humble us and unite our hearts to fear your name? Would you satisfy our hearts in the morning? Would you warm our hearts to trust and treasure you above all things? Because it would be better for the temple to close down and to not allow people who are offering these sacrifices to think that they are doing so correctly. My prayer this week was, God, if we, if we, if our hearts turn far from you, if we start polluting your name, if we start defiling your name by uh, explicitly rebelling against what your word says and not really even caring, just shut us down. I do not want to lead people astray. I don't want to lead people astray to think that, well, the, the mountain church says they honor God, so I guess if I want to learn how to honor God, I'll go to them. God, if we cease to be a people who worship you in spirit and truth, if we cease to honor you with our affections and just pay simple lip surface to you, God, if we become a people who simply go through the motions, who carry on our routines, and simply become a people who meet together, a little country club, shut us down. Father, we don't want to despise your name. We don't want to lead people astray if this ever happens. We don't want to lead people astray who think just saying a few words, seeing some songs, and worshiping with our hearts not engaged is actually worshiping God. One commentator said it like this, religious activity performed without genuine love and gratitude to God is not only useless, but repulsive to him because it slanders his character. God does not need our gifts or our service and his favor cannot be bought. Strong words in verse 10. But I love verse 11. If you into highlighting, underlining, marking, see how God reveals his heart to us in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, 
my name will be great among the nations. You hear God's heart in that? My name will be great. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. God gives us this beautiful promise, this beautiful declaration. God reveals his heart in verse 11, this passion he has for protecting and displaying his glory, his, his name, who he is. This phrase, from the rising of the sun to its setting, at every place a pure offering that my name will be great among the nations is God's promise that even if the Israelites, even if my chosen people, people that I called and have chosen to represent me, to be the priest to the nations, to be the people who my blessing comes through to the, the nations, even if they are failing me and disobedient, my name will be great. See God's sovereignty in this. Nothing is going to thwart his plans. Nothing's going to frustrate him. My name will be great. Even if the ones who are called to represent me don't, my name will be great and offerings will be given to me by all people. This rising of the sun to the setting, it's, it's prophetic. It's a promise. It's kind of uh, predictive language. It speaks to a time when all nations will worship and enjoy God. The, the time we're at, we're at now. Speaks to a time in which the Gentiles will be engrafted into God's covenantal people. And what God's saying is that although my name is profane now, my name will be great. My name will be honored. My name will be glorified. That's a beautiful God. That's a strong, sovereign, never-changing, not frustrated God. Now, as Western Americans, this idea of God's God-centeredness, the reality that God is all about himself, can sometimes rub us the wrong way, can't it? I know it did for me when I was, <laughs> when I kind of thought God was all about us and we were at the center of his universe. We're not. God is at the center of his universe. God is all about God. That might rub us the wrong way. But we have to ask the question, who would you rather have God be about? Can he really ultimately be about us? People who are not infinitely perfect and glorious, wouldn't that make God an idolater? Wouldn't that make God a liar? This has actually led uh, people like Oprah to say that the, the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith is a megalomaniac. He's kind of this whiny, praise me, praise me, praise me. Honor me, I'm the best. That God is all about himself. But if God is infinitely glorious and wonderful and all-powerful, he has to be about himself. And the beautiful thing is about this is when we become all about God, we function as we were intended to be and we get the most joy. We get uh, to be filled with the joy of God. Verse 12. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. Now, I didn't really understand what this passage was getting at because it seemed kind of like a repetition of what Malachi had originally said. 
But what Malachi is showing here is the stupidity of the people. He's showing that, well, they say, you profane my table, that the Lord's table is polluted when they are the ones who are offering inappropriate sacrifices. You see the, the inconsistency there in their logic? It would be like Will selecting and singing a song that is contrary to sound doctrine. It's not theologically correct. We sing the song on Sunday, and then afterwards he comes to me and says, wow, what was up with music this morning? That song was way off base. Well, Will, you chose that song, right? It would be like if I preached a sermon that ridiculed God, that was not in accord with sound doctrine, the gospel was not preached, and I left saying, wow, Mount Church this morning, the gathering, what was up with that? Jesus was, he wasn't uplifted, he wasn't honored. That was pathetic. The priests are making the sacrifices and they're saying that the Lord's table is polluted. It was the priest's responsibility to keep unacceptable offerings away from the altar and yet they were the ones who were complaining that it was defiled. And then God says, "What you say, what a weariness is this? And you snort at it. I, I thought about just snorting at that, but uh, I don't think you guys would want to hear that. You, snorting was a gesture of contempt. It was a rude gesture, a gesture of ridicule and mockery. This is what the people were doing. They were mocking God. They were saying that God was, it was, it was tiresome. It was a burden. These sacrificial systems, worship did not come up from a heart of love. It was all duty with them. And they were complaining about it. And they were snorting at God. And listen again to God's strong language about hypocrisy, about double-minded. It says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. He not only is not honored by hypocrisy, but he curses it. He curses the sacrifice, the one who offered the sacrifice if it's founded in lies. The guy who tries to deceive God. Like, God, I'll, I'll prepare my best lamb for you, my best sheep, my best cow, whatever it is. And then right as you go to sacrifice it, oops, found this old lame one, <laughs> about to die anyways. Here you go, God. He's not going to be deceived. He's not going to be hoodwinked. God curses the hypocrisy and, because he deserves the pure offering, the pure sacrifice, the best, what the Bible describes as the first fruits. Psalm 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And again, we need, to, we need to ask ourselves some, some questions. We need to look at our hearts. Because it's easy for us to look at this time and say, well, way back then, before Jesus, man, those Israelites, wicked people. Wicked. I mean, saying to God that you're going to give him your best and then you offer something that's lame. Practically, you have to ask ourselves, what, what do we offer? What promises do we make to God? What does this look like practically for us? I think number one, it means that we honor God with our wealth. And not our leftovers. Not the few bucks or pennies that we have left over. Before we begin spending our paycheck, we should set aside an amount that honors God and, and give it to him. What about honoring God with our time? What time do you give God? 
I'm becoming more, more and more convinced in my own life that, that God is deserve of my, the first time in the morning. Because what oftentimes happens is when I don't give God the first of my mornings, when I don't spend time intentionally with him, I'll think, I'll do that before I go to bed. Or I'll do that at lunch. Before I go to bed, I'll open my phone to look at a couple of scriptures and my, my mind is already starting to shut down. And I'm not really honoring God with the, the best of my thoughts. Now, you might be wired completely different than me. You might wake up in the morning and think, those are my worst thoughts. Like, I think the best right before I go to bed. I said, honor God with that time. How do we honor God with our thoughts? With our words? Is God an afterthought in your day? Is prayer and the word what you do with leftover time? May our awe and wonder of God lead us to revere and worship him in the day-to-day, every day. Not only the first, but continually. Then finally in verse 14, God kind of gives us a capstone, an ending again, revealing his heart. I love this verse. For I am a great king. Says the Lord of hosts, there's that phrase again. And what does he say? For my name will be feared among the nations. This word great king, great means standing above others in quality or position. God could say, I'm the greatest king. There is no one like me. I'm your king. And all nations will fear me. This is the promise. And what I love about this verse is how it and this whole section, really, I've been loving studying Malachi, is how it, it points to Jesus. I'm of the belief that all Scripture points to Christ, so that from all of Scripture we should be proclaiming Christ. How do, what does this verse teach us about Jesus? How does this verse point to Jesus? Because ultimately our great King came down to earth. Ultimately, our great king was born to a virgin Mary in a feeding trough. Ultimately, our great king came down and lived in total obedience to God. He did what we cannot do. He lived perfectly honoring and fearing God. He lived in, lived in perfect submission to God. He completely revered and honored the name of God. Jesus, our great king, came and served as our representative. He is the pure offering, the undefiled offering, the sacrifice that is required to satisfy the wrath of God. He justifies all who believe in him by his giving them his perfect righteousness. He upholds God's glory and, and holiness, and he offers the love of God to all people who have faith and repent in the gospel. 
And now because of Jesus, true worship is restored to God's people. God gives us a promise that in the coming of Jesus, as someone believes in him, that their heart is literally transformed. That the heart of stone, as the prophet Ezekiel says, is, is removed and a heart of flesh is put in. We are given a heart that now wants to honor God. That although we were enemies, we were dead, we were corpses, we were dead in sin, we were slaves to Satan and, and death, God has given us a new spirit that we can now honor him and worship him. The message of Malachi 6.14 is still true. That God requires and wants to be honored and revered. And now we have the hope that we can do this in the Holy Spirit by believing in the gospel. Now we can have hope that we are renewed by God's love and we can continually come back to his amazing grace shown to us in Christ. But there still is a sobering message from Malachi 1. Because the reality that, that just as God did not like the hypocrisy, that he cursed uh, those who tried to deceive him or trick him. God is still not honored by half-hearted worship. God is still not honored by hypocrisy. And just as God's plan, God's ordained purpose was to use the Israelites to be his representative, to be the people that were supposed to be the priests to the nations, Christians are still called to be his representatives. We are called to, to be used by God, to represent him, to live a life that reflects who he is. So if you're a Christian this morning and you call yourself a Christian, know that you are God's representative to the nations. That's not something to be taken lightly. That's not something that we should kind of just live casually and flippantly. What does your life reflect about God if you are a Christian? Does your thoughts, your bank account, your time, your energy reflect the reality that God is insignificant? That he's a nuisance? That he's a nice old man? He's who I tip my hat to, I pay my respects to? Or does your thoughts, your bank account, your time, your energy reflect the reality that God is most significant? that he's the greatest king, that he's your master, your father, your Lord? Have you reoriented your life around this great king? Does he determine where you go, what you do, and how you do it? Is he the one that you're worth, that you're willing to lay everything down for, that you've written a blank check to, that you've submitted everything to? Is he the one that's first and foremost in your thoughts? Is he your all-consuming passion? should be our prayer. What does your life reflect about God? I pray that we would continually come back to Christ, that we would continually come back to the gospel, that we continue to come back to our, the reality that our identity is in Christ and we are loved and accepted by God, and that we would use everything in our life our time, our talent, our treasure, everything that we have to leverage to making this God look like who he really is. That we would leverage everything in our life to multiply this gospel, to get it out, to represent the God of the Bible, 
to show the difference that Jesus makes, to show that he is our, our true delight, our satisfaction, our treasure. This is my heartbeat. This is what I want to be about. This is what I want our church to be about. Don't let me, don't let each other slip into a, a complacent, callous worship of God. Can we make that promise to each other? Can we make the promise that we want to glorify God above all things? Can we make the promise that even when we don't feel like it, when our heart's not in it, that we'll be calling each other to that? I don't know about you, but I often want to wake up and glorify myself, right? I get up in the morning and the first thing I'm thinking about is myself. I go throughout my whole day and God is an afterthought. I need you guys. We need each other. We need each other to be calling ourselves to. Don't lose focus, Daniel. God is not all about you. Daniel, if you were glorified above all things, we would be in hell. You are a wicked, sick sinner. Remind me of that. They know there is nothing better in this life than Jesus. There is nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more pleasurable. There's nothing that is worth more than Jesus. Live your life like that. Does the way that you spend, let me see your bank account, Daniel. Does the way that you spend your money to reflect this, would we have the audacity to do that with each other? Hey, Aaron, what'd you do with that bonus? Think about yourself. Honestly, think about Pam. Yeah, nice one. <laughs> I think, guys, if we're gonna if we're gonna seek to be a light to Des Moines, if we are seek to to be a, an instrument that God's gonna use to bring renewal and restoration to the city, we have to be laser focused on this. We have to be rock solid. Because otherwise, if, if our heart's not in it, if, we're not, if the lives that we live don't reflect the reality that Jesus is treasured above all things, then the message, the gospel, that Jesus is most satisfying is gonna fall on deaf ears. There's no weight in the way that we live. If our lives just look like every other couple in Des Moines that doesn't know God, what, what is our witness gonna reflect? They're gonna think that, yeah, you guys really have a lame hobby because we don't live any differently and yet you waste a couple hours of your week by doing this God thing. We need each other. We need to be rock solid focus on this. And we need to be reminded of this often because I, I love you guys. You are my family. And I want you to experience so much joy in Christ that you never thought was possible. And that will only happen if we are, our focus is God-centeredness, God-glorified. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your grace that you've shown us in Christ. Father, you are so gracious and patient with us. Father, even when we live our lives in a way that is not honoring of you, we live our lives that that reflect that you are not really our treasure, you are not our all-consuming passion, Father, that you still love us and you still use us. But Father, may we be ever more aware of your grace and your patience toward us, of your love toward us, that we would respond with honoring you above all things. You are our Father, you are our Master. So Father, I just I confess myself how often I wake up and think about myself and worshiping Daniel's show. Father, would you, would you remove my pride and my sin? Would you remove our pride, our flesh that wants to be glorified, that seeks honor, that seeks satisfaction apart from you in our own ways? We think we know how to get the most joy. We know how to plan our lives the best. We know what's really gonna bring us pleasure and it's not you. Father, we just remove that, that flesh, that desire from us. Would you grow our unity for each other, Father? Do you unite us in you? That we might be all about this, pointing each other, reminding each other, praying for one another. So, Father, we hope and pray that as we do this, as we seek to make you the all-consuming passion of our life, as we seek to honor you above all things, that others would see the difference that that makes that that would be the light that draws other to you. Well, we want our witness to have weight in the way we reflect what we believe. Would our confession match our convictions? So Father, I ask now that you would do a work that only you can do. You would send your spirit to renew us and, and restore us and sanctify us as you continually are doing. And Father, ask now that we would worship you in song, that we would respond to your amazing grace, your amazing compassion, the, the love that you've shown us in Christ, that although we've given you uh, polluted sacrifices and offerings, you sent the, the blemished, free, pure lamb of God to die for us. We would be, thank you and worship you for that now. I ask this in your son's name, amen. do every week in which we celebrate the gospel. We share a meal together, a meal that signifies that although we were dead in sin, although we were enemies of God, he saved us. He had grace on us. He's made us alive in Christ. And we do that as we come to the table and we take the cracker, the bread, and we hear the words of the gospel, Christ's body given for you. And as we dip it in the cup, we hear the words of the gospel, Christ's blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is a time of reflection, of, of confession, of repentance, but it's also a time of celebration, that we are forgiven, that we've been saved. And it's also a time of anticipation, of looking forward to God's sending of his son a second time to make all things right, to remove this flesh that we're fighting against, this tendency that we have to, to despise God, and he's going to unite us in perfect fellowship one day. So the table's now open. Please come at your own pace.